This is MIT Technology Review. About this time last year, I went to a live taping of some TED Talks in Vancouver. And one of them completely changed my thinking about generative AI. Hi, my name's Holly, and I'm an artist. That was my voice, but I didn't sing that clip. I trained an AI on my own voice, and now she can sing anything in multiple languages. This is Holly Hernan. And you just heard her perform El Cant de la Sibila, which is a traditional song arranged by Maria Arnal in Catalan. Not a language that I speak, and not a vocal tradition that I've trained in. Those melismatic runs are really difficult to hit. <laughs> she calls it Holly Plus, and she refers to this system as her. Teaching an AI the sonic properties of one sound in order to generate an entirely new sound is what I like to call spawning. Spawning is what allows Holly Plus to create a wide range of vocals that I didn't sing from a set of recorded phrases that I did sing. She thinks of it kind of like a modern version of sampling, which had a huge impact on music and intellectual property. It's when someone copies and remixes a recording in order to make something new. But with spawning, you can perform as someone else based on trained information about them. And as an artist, this is making me rethink my own past work, as not only my archive, but potentially also I, myself, could become reanimated with AI. This also opens up the question of how we deal with a collective human archive. It opens up almost as many questions as it does possibilities. Then, things get a whole lot weirder, as in, what if you could sing as your favorite performer? I invite you to consider, if given the opportunity, who would you like to perform through? And can you imagine someone else performing you? At this point, she invites another musician onto the stage who goes by the name Fur, and he's holding two microphones. So today, Fur will be performing his own song, Murky. And with one microphone, you'll hear Fur's beautiful natural voice. Microphone, you'll hear a live version of Holly Plus developed with Vokter Labs. I'm Jennifer Strong. In this episode, we meet people building next generation tools for creativity. They're thinking about how these AI models should be trained and deployed in order to be both useful and fair to artists. And it gets so murky, love what you know. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. Given the pace of everything to do with creative tools powered by generative AI, it's easy to forget that many of the breakthroughs only happened very recently, like within the past year or two. And we're just starting to work through what it all means. Because these things can all be true at the same time. These tools can make content creation easier and more efficient 
They can also steal stuff, even things as personal as a human voice or the way an artist signs their work. And because these tools are largely powered by work that's already out there, what happens if creators quit making original works and the data just becomes one continuous feedback loop? Some companies are starting to let artists opt out, so their work isn't part of the data that's used to power and train such tools. But you can argue that means all artists are opted in by default. Others avoid using copyrighted work in the first place. One way to look at generative AI is it is essentially a story of automation. Right? You take this idea of creating content with technology, and now we are taking more and more of the production process away from the need to have a human do it and putting it in the hands of a machine. That's incredibly exciting and incredibly scary at the same time. My name is Eli Greenfield. I am the CTO for Adobe's digital media group. My job is to help Adobe make sure that we understand what the future of digital media and creativity is going to be and how technology is going to change that and ensure that we can deliver it for our customers. And so as we look at our customers, who are people who are invested heavily in their creative skills or technical skills, the questions we have to ask is, how do we make sure this technology comes into the world and comes into the workflows in a way that is going to power them to be able to go further in their content creation than they could before, rather than sidelining them, which is what I think a lot of creatives are afraid of right now. And one of the big questions right now is about what kinds of data these systems are trained on. So every one of these generative AIs or any of these large foundational models train on massive, massive amounts of data. That's how they learn their view of the world and of what humans expect is by seeing lots and lots of examples of it. And there are definitely versions of this technology out there that has trained by scraping every piece of content they can find on the web and hoovering it up and learning about it, which creates great results, but causes a lot of ethical questions, legal questions, copyright questions about what these technologies do, whether they're good for the world, whether they're good for creators, whether they cross certain ethical, legal, copyright bounds that we don't want to cross. We had to ask the question of, could we train a model on, on a more restricted set of content that would be acceptable to our customers? And if we did that, would it be, would it be good enough, frankly? And so that was an open question we had early on. We went down the road of, of trying to do it, and we were very pleasantly surprised to find that, yes, we could create something that is definitely high quality and could be useful in real workflows. Because from talking to our customers, we found that that was something that they needed, that the current world of generative AI that's out there, there's a lot of creatives who are excited to use it, there's a lot of people who are excited to use it, but they don't feel like they can, given what they see out there in the market. One way some other industries try to avoid these pitfalls is through the use of synthetic training data, or data that doesn't come from the real world. So there are definitely applications of AI where synthetic data is easily good enough for an AI to be able to accomplish its task. So any of the self-driving car scenarios, they're not being trained to reproduce images of the world, they're just being trained to understand them. And so they can get a lot of that knowledge from synthetic data. When you're starting to create models that want to reproduce content, the danger of training them on synthetic data is they can reproduce synthetic data, right? And so if, you're, if there's any uncanny valley in the content you're training on, that will surface in what it creates. So there is definitely opportunity for us to, to use it there, but we have to make sure that it doesn't degrade the quality of the content that's being output. Andy says this market is changing quickly, with some systems developing special skills for different industries. As some of these models get bigger and bigger and develop a bigger 
sense of the world, we find that there's this emergent ability to then specialize in on particular use cases. If we take those and show them examples, whether it's showing the music examples or showing them certain styles of image examples. And so that is a big, I think, area of investigation for us, which is where do you draw that line? How much do you invest in the foundational piece? And then where can you take it um, by fine tuning on top of that? The other one I'd say, which is a, a really important one for us and for our customers is the question of control, right? So on the, on the creative side, these generative models are, so far they've been mostly focused on, I type a sentence, I get an image out, that image is really pretty, hopefully it's what I want. If it's not, I can start over and do it again. Eventually I get something that will work for my needs. For our customers, for the, you know, a lot of the creatives of the world, they, the work they do is much more focused. They have a goal in mind, they have an idea of the content they wanna create, and using a technology like AI to accelerate that could be incredibly valuable, but it can be very frustrating if it just takes them off in random directions that they can't control. The goal is to evolve this, connecting users with creators in a way that benefits both sides. Because actually the more we use these AIs to create content, the more the dystopian version of it is that at some point there are fewer and fewer people creating original content, and, there's, and then there's less and less content to actually be able to train these things on. So we need to find a way to make these things work that continue to benefit and support people doing original creative work and make sure that they're well compensated for it. Andy says inputs for these systems will continue to evolve as well, with more forms of interaction than just typing a text prompt. The old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Sometimes I don't want to write a thousand words. So we do think that they're where these things need to evolve to and where we think we can bring a lot of value by integrating with our existing tools is by creating these multimodal interfaces where you can direct the machine through a combination of text and example images and circling something and pointing somewhere. Because part of what's made ChatGPT such a huge hit is the way it's used, with a conversational interface. And that, I think, is what really blew open everyone's minds around, you know, what can be done with this technology. And I think we're going to see similar things on the creative side as well, where we evolve from not just one-shot text in image out to multimodal input, output, and then iteration and conversation, because that is what the creative process is for creative pros. And so the more we can, going back to the beginning of the conversation, the more we can elevate the way the computer is able to communicate to the level of understanding the way the human wants to communicate and wants to iterate, the more successful people are going to be using these without having to go learn some esoteric new language to figure out how to drive them. After the break, we meet a man who taught music theory to his AI, rather than using the work of other artists and musicians to train it. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Brian Bryson, Director of Event Content and Experiences here at MIT Technology Review. I'm popping into this podcast to invite you to our upcoming AI conference, MTech Digital. MTech Digital is MIT Technology Review's executive briefing on artificial intelligence, its implementation, and impact on business and society. If you're tasked with integrating AI into customer offerings or using AI to streamline operations, this is your once-a-year opportunity to meet and network with the peers and leaders on the cutting edge of AI. 
Learn more about this exclusive event at mtechdigital.com. All kinds of artists are warning about AI-generated art infringing on copyright, and that includes the recording industry. Its lobbying arm is going after the makers of AI tools that are trained on other people's work. And it's one of the reasons why Google Music LM, which turns text prompts into music, is only available to researchers and not the public. This is a disaster in a copyright problem because they train their materials on 280,000 hours of copyrighted materials. That's not public domain. Dia El Al is the founder of Soundful, an AI music company that's working closely with the music industry. With Soundful, we've never trained on any pre-copyrighted materials. We use the fundamental building blocks in our patent approach, the fundamental building blocks of like how you teach a musician to write an instrument, so it writes chord progression melodies and bass lines based on music theory law. And we were able to achieve that. And we were like, okay, well, second, let's put in some loops of some drum samples, etc. And when we did that, it started sounding generic. And I said, like, okay, well, let's cut out all the loops and let's again follow back again into how you teach a musician to write, where we use the fundamental building blocks of a sound, which we call it one-shot samples. So we only having one-shot samples library. What a one-shot sample is, like a pitch drum is sampled once, a C note on a piano is sampled once. And when we started marrying that with the music theory algos that we developed, then it started sounding, it's sounding very promising. It was promising, but still not quite right to his musically trained ear. And I was like, okay, well, why is that? Because we were trying when we were developing, it's kind of like a one algorithm fits all when it's writing like a piano or writing a guitar or writing a violin. And this is when we approach it from a completely different, we're like, okay, let's rewrite the different algorithms, mimicking the way that a musician writes a very specific instrument. So guitars in a very specific way, different algo than a piano, because if you're playing a piano as a musician, you will hit certain notes when you're playing it that there is no way a real guitar player will be able to hit. And this is where a lot of our patents lies, our different algorithms and approach for like copying the human musician, how they write or play an instrument. He sees some parallels with other technologies in the past, like the drum machine. When it came out, some argued it was cheating or just plain bad for the industry. But he says it opened up a new way for people to be creative. Hip-hop and EDM, some of the R&B, lo-fi, these are more of like, not easier, but like more achievable genres to be able to tackle, right? But when you get pretty interesting is when you get to the actual live instrument sounding genre. So orchestral, rock, jazz, we rented studios. We brought in real musicians to sample guitar sounds in a very specific way, the way that a guitar is strumming that on a note, not a, not a loop. On a note level, the velocity, the way that he's strumming, like hard, you know, soft, open, closed chords. And we sampled it in a very specific way to humanize it. So when we're doing that, when we're producing that in a, in a rock template, it sounds like a human actually playing it. So same thing with the drums for for rock, same thing with jazz, like piano for jazz, and the way that it writes the notes, the velocity of how it's writing the piano. 
It made us wonder whether he ever unleashes the system and lets it behave in a way that's not like a human. Our goal is to create studio-quality, high-fidelity sounds to, to actually for the users to be able to use. That doesn't sound generic, right? So you have to mimic the way that a human plays it. But in the same sense, yes, we do unleash it in, in sound designing and synthesis when it doesn't become to the real instruments to, to add like effects here and there. That this is where it comes interesting and unleashing it there is that we're also working on how we can bottle the artist's sound in collaboration with the major artist producers on brand and build a template like, you know, XYZ artists. And when you create from it, it bottles their sound. It doesn't have any trained on any pre-existing materials that this artist used, but it's really allowing the artists and producers and even brands to enter in a whole new category that they were never entered before and empower the people that look up to them. And they're going to be able to monetize on their likeness rather than being ripped off like tight beats like a tight beats and it's called tight beats market where you know no baby tight beat well no like we can go into a collaboration with this artist and we have a series of these with some of the biggest producers also on artists that will be releasing in q2 of this year white shadow is a grammy award-winning producer lady gaga pitbull Rodrigo iglesias etc This episode was reported and produced by me and Anthony Green with Emma Silicons. It's edited by Matt Honan and mixed by Garrett Lang, with original music by Garrett Lang and Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.